Tis the season for a new holiday classic, and this week's episode is brought to you by The Man Who Invented Christmas. For your consideration in all categories, including Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor. The Chicago Sun-Times calls Christopher Plummer's performance as Scrooge sensational, and the Washington Post raves Dan Stevens inhabits the character of Charles Dickens beautifully. Learn more about the movie and these performances at BleakerStreetGuilds.com. So welcome to the Bart Fleming Podcast. I'm Peter Bart. Mike Fleming. And this is the time of year, of course, Mike, when the, the 10 best lists appear, which to me is always a study in confusion and, and pedantry as well, because the, the critics always feel that they must uh, find some movies that most of us have never heard of and honor those. Like, I know it's A.O. Scott of the New York Times, Tony Scott, he listed A Quiet Passion, as one of his 10 best, which is a, a biopic about a 19th century poet, Emily Dickinson. Did you see that one? I, I, I missed a quiet passion. No, it seems like an appropriate title. Manola, Manola Dargis, on her 10 best list is Ex Libris, a documentary about the New York Public Library. Missed that as well. So if you read the 10 best list as a guide of what movies to see, uh, you're going to be definitely confused. Uh, I mean, Tony Scott, again, says the Florida Project is the best of the year, and I don't think the Globes uh, heaped much recognition on that. My favorite nomination of the Globes is Get Out, which they list they list as a comedy, and I don't think they, they the director, Jordan Peele, who's a comic in a way, I don't think he got listed for anything. Yeah, they didn't give him, uh, he, 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 he got ignored for best director and best screenplay, but his lead actor, uh, Daniel Kaluuya, um, did did get a nomination. I mean, I, it, right now it's so hard to say. The race is pretty wide open, and um, and we've now pretty much gotten an opportunity to see the last two big movies, um, or two of the last big movies, with The Post and Phantom Thread, and and then um, the other ones to present themselves. Uh, would be The Greatest Showman, which got a nomination, a Best Picture nomination by the Golden Globes, and All the Money in the World, which um, which Ridley Scott managed to whip together in time to uh, show the Hollywood foreign press voters right before their deadline. And that movie got three nominations, including Best Director and a nomination for Christopher Plummer, who before last month didn't even know he was going to be in the movie. Well, the most nominations, of course, were accumulated by The Shape of Water, which is an enigmatic picture. I didn't love it, but it's certainly a, a, an extra, a fine bit of, of filmmaking. Oh, I totally disagree with you. I think that movie was, uh, was, <coughs> was spectacularly imaginative storytelling, and, uh, and he, he put a lot on the screen for for a reasonable uh, budget. I think uh, Guillermo del Toro has always been one of those guys where you see flourishes of genius. And, you know, and we certainly saw it in, in the movie Pan's Labyrinth. And I think that he put it all together in this film. So I, I, I think you have to seriously consider this one for, for best picture. 
Well, despite the pressure to include more racially themed pictures, it's interesting to me that Mud, Mudbound has really not gotten the attention it deserves as yet. And a picture you liked a lot, Wind River, I don't think is getting the recognition. I wonder whether part of that is, again, escaping its escape from the grasp of Harvey Weinstein that you've written and talked about. Uh, but I think that, uh, mm. that, I think that picture deserves more acclaim than it's getting. Yeah, I really did too. I was I was very moved when I saw it at its Cannes premiere, where Taylor Sheridan, for his directing debut, won um, Best Director in the Uncertain Regard category. Um, but no, the movie has well. It, it also came out during the summer, and it played really well. It was one of the one of the the highest grossing prestige movies of the year, uh, behind The Big Sick, which, by the way, also got ignored by the Golden Globes. But I, but you know, but it's hard for a movie like that to make noise, and um, and you you know you just all you can do if you're them is to just hope that uh, that the Oscar voters keep it in mind. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, to me, again, someone who should be kept in mind is this amazing little person called Sally Hawkins. I mean, when you think of the, the again in the Shape of Water, and in Marty. The two roles that she played are so idiosyncratic and so uniquely different that I, I think she should just get, get an Oscar or a Globe or whatever just for originality. Well, she was a, um, certainly a revelation in the shape of water. And, um, and, it, and it was kind of gutsy, um, you know, to put, a, to put not a big star in, uh, you know, in, in a movie like that. And basically, and, and you know, and, and, and surround her with some, uh, some terrific actors like, um, like Richard Jenkins and Michael Shannon and, uh, you know, and, and then there was, and obviously, um, there were several others. And so, you know, I think it all came together really well. So basically what we have here. Uh, and I should add the, the disaster artist in 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 the mix here, which also got a, a a nomination for for best picture in the musical or comedy category. I I saw that movie the other day, and I must say I'm I'm kind of obsessed with Jane Fra James Franco's performance as this uh, director Tommy Wiseau. I mean, talk about throwing yourself into a character completely. I mean, this was a real commitment, and I think that James could be, he could surprise us in this race. Certainly, uh, uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, yeah, I think he could be a surprise. I really do. And then you have the big movies. You have, you know, The Post and Dunkirk. And, uh, and I would put Phantom Thread in that category since it's Paul Thomas Anderson and, and Daniel Day-Lewis. How do you think those will uh, factor in, in, in the awards conversation? Well, to go back to Franco, what I think is unique about him is that when you think of the genre of his work. I mean, here's a guy who started off with about freaks and geeks on television. And then, of course, there's one Franco path, which is with Seth Rogen, with Pineapple Express and The Interview, your favorite North Korean picture. And then the other Franco path, which is As I Lay Dying and Bukowski and all these art pictures that no one went to see, including Franco's parents. But he is, he is, when you think of it, he has had the most wonderfully eccentric and, and uh, career of any, and he's not even 40 yet. He's still a young guy. There's nobody else like Franco. No, there isn't. And, you know, he, um, yeah, he mixes it up pretty good, but he, I thought he was wonderful in 127 hours, and that was a movie that uh, 
was just such a hard sell to watch a guy basically pinned, um, you know, a mountain climber just basically pinned and dying. I mean, but, but boy, that was another uh, tremendous commitment, uh, character commitment. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think he's going to, I, I, he's always interesting. He's, he's never dull. He always brings something to the table, but I think in, in this case, the disaster artist is just, you know, I, I wish he could do a sequel. I, I love that character. I just love that character. Well, as much as you and I both liked this, the post, um, I think that we agreed possibly on one uh, fallacy in the plot, and that is the, the way Daniel Ellsberg is sort of marginalized. I mean, here's this amazing guy who, because he stole the Pentagon Papers, basically, and released it to the media, could have faced more than 100 years in jail under the Espionage Act. And I remember doing... Well, the- yeah, well, yes, you, you know, and, I, and I've been carping to you on this for, for some time. There's a terrific documentary about him. And the, yeah, that, that was the only... And, and the documentary stuck in my head when, when I at first mentioned this to you. And, uh, you know, I think Daniel Ellsberg is the definition of a hero. I mean, unlike Snowden... Um, you know, he didn't take a powder after he leaked his documents. He, he basically, when, when accused of doing it, he raised his hand and he said, yes, I did it. And then basically when they said, well, you're going to go to prison. And he said, if I have to go to prison to stop an unjust war, I'll go to prison. And so to me, yeah, I, I thought that he basically served as a prop in the post. And I understand storytellers have to make choices. And the narrative choice they made was was uh, was to talk about Kay Graham through Meryl Streep's, um, you know, um, emergence as a leader um, in, in which, you know, she 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 basically took over the paper. It was a man's world. And and she stepped up and made hard decisions. And then Ben Bradley, who obviously is a storied journalist. But I did feel that, um, you know, that Ellsberg, who, you know, even I mean, look at all the things that happened to him after, you know, after after this happened, he basically had his uh, what his psychiatrist's office was burgled by the by the Watergate uh, crew. And uh, and and if it hadn't been for Watergate, he probably would have been behind bars. And, And so, yes, I know you have to make choices in a movie like that, but I would have liked to have seen uh, Ellsberg um, get a little more, you know, uh, his, his dilemma be factored in as, as, as more of the picture, but it was a great movie, the post don't get me wrong. I think it was, uh, I mean, as a journalist, you, it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? It does. And I spent some time talking to this weekend with the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and his feeling about award season is interesting because on the one hand, needless to say, as the owner of the Washington Post and as a person who sort of reinvented the paper, creating it in such a, an extraordinary digital force in addition to the print paper, I mean, he loves the fact that the Post is really the star of this movie. On the other hand, Amazon has had a tough time in the, in the uh, award season, and his picture, The Big Sick, which, uh, again, which was, I think, Amazon's best picture, which has grossed almost $60 million, but it can't get um, that much attention uh, so far in, in award season, which is a shame, because I think, I think it's, an, it's a very unique and interesting picture. So Bezos is conflicted. He is the happiest man well, in I town. Well, I wonder... But also uh, troubled. Yeah, I wonder how 
do you really think that awards are that important to the Amazon uh, game plan? I mean, I suppose all you can do is keep trying. I know, for instance, uh, you know, Jason Rappel, who basically, uh, you know, took the reins of the film operation over there uh, after the shakeups they had. Um, he made a very big buy uh, that the, the deadline broke um, in, in getting the film Life Itself by Dan Fogelman, you know, who created This Is Us, which is the the breakout uh, uh, network series uh, on, you know, on NBC, just about the, the one of the few breakout series to, 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 uh, you know, to come along that has done, that has been as successful as it has been on the, on a major network. And, uh, and they spent $10 million for us rights to this movie. And they, and they managed to, uh, to get it, even though uh, two studios were in the finals and bidding about the same money. Mike, I think that awards are important to Netflix and Amazon because they're sort of new players in town. And I think they'd like to prove to the talent that involved in their pictures that, that even though the, you know, the Netflix and Amazon have different reasons to make pictures than, say, Fox or Disney, that still, if you're, if, you, if you're a filmmaker or you're a star of one of their films, you can get recognized just as importantly as if you were working for a major studio. Well, but I guess the question is, how great of a business strategy is that? And Manchester by the Sea, for instance, um, you know, uh, was right there and Casey Affleck won the Best Actor uh, Oscar, and that was their, their big acquisition uh, out of the Sundance Film Festival a couple years ago, and, and The Big Sick was also a Sundance acquisition. But I wonder if that movie made a lot of money, because they certainly spent a lot of money campaigning for the, uh, for the Oscar. And um, I don't know, it's a, it's a, you wonder if Amazon wants to play in the, in the in, you know, do they want to go after the tent poles? Are they content to, to, to basically run a prestige film shingle? It'll be very interesting to see how all that shakes out and how Amazon continues to develop under Rappel. Yeah, absolutely. This week's episode is also brought to you by Breathe for your consideration in all categories, including Best Actor Andrew Garfield. Rolling Stone calls Andrew Garfield's turn a fierce, fully committed performance and a loving tribute to a courageous man. Learn more about this remarkable story and Andrew Garfield's performance at BleakerStreetGills.com. So to, to switch topics here, Again, if you look at Time Magazine's cover, The Silence Breakers, it reminds us that as reports of harassment keeps growing, there's also growing frustration about what to do about it. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say you're against it, but um, well, I mean, one intriguing example of the sense of frustration is the announcement of the Academy of Motion Pictures in adopting a new code of conduct to punish offenders uh, the, those people who offend the accepted moral standards. But this raises the question, can an organization whose purpose is to reward people, can it also end up punishing people? I know John Bailey, the president of the Academy, who himself is a cinematographer, he, he said to me that this organization cannot be an inquisitorial court. I think he's got a point. How do you feel about a code of conduct? Well, I, I mean, it, it, it does make it hard uh, to take seriously when um, when Roman Polanski, who actually, uh, you know, pled guilty to uh, to uh, 
basically, um, you know, I, I guess you would call it a, a statutory rape back in, you know, this was a long time ago, but, but he fled the country and he did not uh, uh, serve his time. And he's an Academy member, is he not? He is. How do you take this seriously? But once again, Roman uh, Polanski is now, I think, 83 years old. And he is still making pictures. Uh, I, I know him. He's a, a good daddy and, uh, a, a, and is a very happily married guy. Uh, so what, what point would be proved by expelling uh, a geriatric filmmaker from the Academy whose the crimes which he acknowledged, and he did do some time, as you remember. I mean, those are, again, yeah. four decades ago. So I think, um, once again, the, did he do those things? Yeah. Uh, but what would be proved by expelling uh, the him? Well, you make some great points. And so I, I think the, the answer is, but but here's the here's the rub. So you're going to basically uh, keep him in, even though that happened a long time ago. And and what he did was as bad as as bad as anything that we've read about in the past several months, in my view. And um, and so you're going to kick people out who have not pled guilty or even been tried in a criminal court. Um, you know, just based on uh, some article that ran and then a subsequent, I'm apolo I apologize if I offended anybody. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it, I just think that it's perhaps something that uh, was an unnecessary um, can of worms to, for the Academy to, to step into. I mean, like they're, they, they mean well, uh, just as they meant well when they varied the voting uh uh, you know, the, the Academy voters to try and create a little bit of, of a chance for, uh, you know, for diversity in their awards. And I thought that that was those moves they made were smart. Um, but this one, I, I just I, I don't see how you just as you said uh, 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 that Bailey told you, I don't see how basically you attach sentences because most of this stuff is rumored. It's he said, she said. And um where do you draw the line? Well, I think also that the whole nature of the dialogue between filmmakers and actors is so unique in, in the entertainment business. I mean, I've, I've been present at intensely personal discussions where a director and an actress, for example, negotiate the logistics of a love scene. I mean, where will the camera trespass? How much intimate detail will be shown? I mean, the whole, even in the casting process, Actors, filmmakers, the, they, their conversations, their relationships grow out of trust. They're not, it's not like, like hiring an auditor. So I think that, that given, given the nature of that trust that is intrinsic to the filmmaking business, um, it's hard to impose rigid uh, codes which are, are more easily applicable to other, other forms of business. Well, look, you know, this, this, these, these sexual harassment thing, this whole, this whole movement is happening in real time. <clears throat> and I think that a lot of this stuff is just going to have to uh, sort itself and mistakes will be made. Um, but it's, but it seems to me that I'm not sure we're at the point where you can institutionalize policies, especially when they're basically based on, on accusations that have not been tried in a criminal court. That was always the standard, as you recall. 
But now, even like, let's say, in the case of Nate Parker, now Nate quitted in a criminal court. And yet I don't I haven't seen his name come up in terms of getting a big uh, plum job. And, and that's so basically he's been convicted in the court of public perception and uh, and, and the media court. So so this whole thing is just so difficult to navigate. And, um, you know, and and there is this white hot torch bearing crusade out there that, you know, that that wants people ended. Um, I'm not sure that the I'm not sure the Academy should have done what it did right now, because like we've talked about, who do you kick out of the Academy? You make a good point. So I think we may agree on, on a lot of those issues, but I think the important thing on this podcast is that you and I disagree on most of the pictures that we see. I think that's a traditional that yes. we should that we should sustain because um, I think you basically are a kind-hearted person and you go into movies wanting to like them. And I guess I do too. But you know, spending 20 years of my life at a studio, I find when I go into a movie, within 15 minutes I'm already analyzing what it what it could have been or should have done better. I also start always worrying about how's this movie going to end? I mean, have they painted themselves into a corner? And uh, even on the post, I'm not sure I liked the way it ended. Uh, it seems to me that to end on the personal triumph of Meryl Streep would have been more interesting than then to cut back to more, to more political uh, affairs. But that's my problem, right? Well, yeah, and uh, you know, did I mention how much I liked um, Phantom Thread, and, and which which supposedly is going to be Daniel Day Lewis's uh, final performance? I, I did not. I I can't remember laughing at a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but I was amused uh, by that film. Um, I thought it was a clever little um, wry, dark comedy. You see, I didn't, and I, I must confess, I didn't get it at all. But we agreed on the disaster artist. So I think, I think anything involving disaster is something that you and I can always, can always get in sync on, Mike. And on that, sure. uh, and mm. on that note, talk to you next week. It's a deal. Thank you. Mm.